Um, Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time tonight. I saw Star Wars episode 3, and um, it helped me understand why the galaxy is in such chaos. Now that I saw that film, I understand it. You know, what it did is it helped the diehard Star Wars fan connect all of the dots and figure out who did what and where things came from and why Darth Vader ended up the way he ended up. All of those questions are answered uh, in that film. And Yoda, by the way, rocks the planet in that. It's just he does, he's the star. Okay, push that aside for a moment on a more serious note. You know that we've been engaged overseas in a war, a conflict in the country of Iraq. And it's not that we're just eradicating the chaos and fighting the evil, but we're restoring, in fact, we're establishing a brand new government. And to do that, to push out the Ba'ath Party that has been in control for so many years and to establish a democratic government takes several steps. And some of those steps will be outlined here in the brand new city of Jerusalem that has been established. The project is completed. The walls have been built by chapter 7, and leadership is established. In fact, what we see in chapter 7 is leadership. We see citizenship, and we see stewardship. Those three principles are seen, and those are the very things that are occurring over in Iraq. Um, Leadership is being developed. We're grooming leaders who are elected by the citizenry of that country. That's where the citizenship comes in. They have to be registered. We want them to vote, to be involved, to cooperate with the laws. And then stewardship. Millions, billions of dollars are being poured into that country to develop it. Um, I've been gone the last couple of Sundays, and um, it's good to be back Uh, One Sunday, the first Sunday I mentioned last week, I was at Harvest in Riverside. And this last week, I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, at the church that I pastored for 23 years. And when I was on the airplane, you know, it was an interesting time, a lot of mixed emotions for us. But on the airplane, coming back, reading through uh, chapter 7 of Nehemiah, I read it through the lens of what I had just seen and all of those emotions. And I saw several parallels to what I have done and, and this chapter, what I have done in terms of leaving and moving and passing on leadership uh, to others. So I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 1. You can see it's a long chapter. There's a lot of fun names. And uh, let's get to the meat of it at the first few verses. This is where the leadership comes in. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors... When the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani, and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. The wall was built. The project was done. That part is great. It's relatively safe. 
enemies are still on the outside. Geshem, the Arab, um, Sanballat and Tobiah, we read about them. We discussed the problems of having them around and the strategies that they were trying to develop to get into the city by terrorism. The threat of attack is still there, but the walls are built. It's relatively safe. It's now time to pass on a leadership role that Nehemiah up to this point has had in that city. He's been the governor. He's been the guy in charge. Now he's going to choose other men, other leaders next to him. They've got to be the right kind. Imagine working for this company. Has little over 500 employees. Here's the following statistics. 29 have been accused of spousal abuse. Seven have been arrested for fraud. 19 have been accused of writing bad checks. 117 have bankrupted at least two businesses. Three have been arrested for assault. 71 can't get a credit card because of bad credit. 14 have been arrested on drug-related charges. Eight have been arrested for shoplifting. 21 are current defendants in lawsuits. In 1998 alone, 84 stopped, have been stopped for drunk driving. Which organization? It's the 535 members of the United States Congress. <laughs> now, now, what's ironic, as well as shocking, what's ironic is pretty obvious. This is the outfit. These are the guys that are coming up with hundreds, thousands of laws that we are supposed to abide by. They're telling us by the laws they pass how we ought to live. Yet this is their track record. Nehemiah raises up the right kind of leadership described in verses 2 and in verse 3. Now, I have over the years in the ministry, and, you know, as I look back on the years I've been in the ministry, it sounds like a long time, um, about 25 years. It doesn't feel like a long time. It feels like I'm just getting started. But I have, um, I've raised up, I have trained, and I have worked with leaders on a variety of fronts in a number of ways, especially in the church. In raising them up, in finding leaders and releasing them, i got to be honest, sometimes I've been blessed. Other times I've been burned. Some have their own agenda, self-promoting agenda, and if you don't follow their agenda, you get burned. Others have God's agenda, God's glory, God's kingdom they want to build up, and they're wonderful to work with. Now go back and look at uh, verse 1. It says, When the wall was built, and I had hung the doors. Now, indulge me a little bit. I'm going to kind of take off on my own experience and weave the interpretation of this through that lens that I have just walked through this last week. The wall was built, and I hung the doors. The building expansion of the city of Jerusalem had been completed. And so he shifts the leadership onto two other men. Well, that's my experience. Uh, I left Albuquerque. Paul was just there this weekend, as was I. I left it just as we completed a building project. We finished the sanctuary. Uh, we expanded it. We uh, expanded the courtyard, put in an outdoor baptism and a fountain and a um, new cafe and a new bookstore 
and a new amphitheater outside with a five-acre Frisbee golf course park and a skate park, and there's two radio stations, and we had about 138 people on staff. And so all of that was going on, a well-oiled machine. And uh, no- notice in our text, uh, the gatekeepers were appointed, the singers and the Levites were appointed. To the Jerusalemites, to ancient Israelites, music wasn't just an aside. They just didn't put in music to, uh, uh, as a time filler so that as latecomers came to the temple, they'd have something to listen to till everybody found their seat. Oh, oh, it was paramount. It was something that was carefully chosen, and a lot of effort was put into it. In fact, if you look at the money required to outfit with instruments... And garments, all of those in the Levitical choir, it would be quite a price tag. Uh, listen to Second Chronicles chapter 5. Here's two verses. When the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, and they praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Eighteen times in the book of Nehemiah, music, in particular the singers, are mentioned. So it wasn't just incidental. It was a primary focus. God was being worshipped. And... uh, They focused on the arts. I believe in that. And as time goes on, we hope to see more and more involvement in the arts. Over in Albuquerque, and we're going to be doing that soon here, we built a recording studio for singers, for young musicians, for people in the state to come and record and uh, to groom the next generation. And then school of ministry students that could come and operate in different uh, areas of the ministry. Well, look at verse 2. He says, When that was done, I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother, Hanani. You remember him in chapter 1. He's the guy that made the long trip from Jerusalem all the way to Persia to give Nehemiah the uh, State of the Union report of Jerusalem. And Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. What Nehemiah does at Jerusalem in transferring the governorship from himself to his brother Hanani and to this other guy who's really the leader of homeland security, as I'll explain in a moment. What he does in Jerusalem is exactly what Paul the Apostle did with two other young men. With Timothy, he took the leadership at Ephesus and passed it on to him. Okay, you take charge of this church now, Timothy. He did it with Titus in the island of Crete in the area of Dalmatia. He, he poured into them um, his time and he equipped them in leadership and then he passed on the role of these churches and the rule of these churches to them. For me, as I looked out over that crowd this weekend in Albuquerque and connected with so many friends, and it was a, it was a wonderful, heartwarming experience. It had been a while since I was back there and What's, a lot of things ran through my mind. One of the things that I told the congregation there is that they were still all sitting in the same places. You know, it's funny how a pastor can tell that. There's four services, and 
I knew who came to each of the four services and basically where they sat in the room. And I looked out and I thought, you guys are still sitting in the same seats. But for me, I just came to a place in my life where I felt like the walls were built. The gates had been hung. Uh, I could stay there and enjoy it and just sort of sit at the top of the heap. But I felt like there was something else the Lord wanted me to do, another challenge to take. So I raised up a Hanani and a Hananiah, a good, strong leadership team, and passed the reins over to them. Um, And then I came back to my Jerusalem, my home, Orange County. (laughs) And I got to tell you, in coming back, I feel a little bit like Nehemiah, who when he was told about his homeland, he wept. Remember, Hananiah said, the walls are broken down back home. The gates are burned with fire. And so in applying that here, coming back to Orange County, I realized the Orange County I came back to was a different Orange County than the one I left 24 years ago. It's a different place. Uh, For one, it's very expensive to come back. (laughs) Number two, there seems to be, and I'm speaking generally, I'm painting with the broom, so forgive me, a general apathy towards spiritual things. Where at one time I remember, and maybe I'm just seeing the past through rose-colored glasses, but it seems to me that I remember that when I left, Jesus Christ was more or less a hero here. I come back and Jesus Christ is more or less a franchise here. It's sort of like just business where we have lots of different expressions and what's the next coolest one rather than the person of Jesus Christ. The walls are broken down. The gates, the entrance are burned with fire. A lot of people feel the the scorching because of experiences at different churches. Well, let's uh, examine a little more carefully. What kind of leader did Nehemiah look for? Now, there's three qualities I want to draw your attention to. They were loyal, they were faithful, and they were reverential. Notice it says, I gave charge of Jerusalem to my brother, Hanani. Now, you might read that and go, well, that's not a good leadership model. Nepotism is never good. You never want to just take somebody who's your brother and throw him into the leadership role, except because at this stage of the game, Nehemiah really didn't know anybody in Jerusalem. He hadn't had enough time in that city yet to observe over time the kind of qualities necessary for leaders around him. So what... Leaders typically look for is loyalty. He knew his brother. He knew his brother knew him and loved him and respected him. There was a built-in loyalty. So this leader, Nehemiah, chose somebody who would be loyal to him and serve alongside of him. After all, Hananiah was uh, chosen, or at least he represented the people of Jerusalem in going all the way back to Persia to bring the news of what was going on. He was a faithful steward, and he was a loyal steward. In Proverbs 13, it says, An unreliable messenger stumbles into trouble, but a reliable messenger brings healing. So he was loyal. Back in New Mexico, at the church that I pastored, it was my 
MO to hire on staff people that I could observe over time. Either they were saved under my ministry or they grew in that church for years under the ministry or they went through our school of ministry. And so we were able to watch them and groom them and train them and then bring them in and made sure that there was a loyalty to that particular ministry, that particular fellowship, that particular style of leadership. And it's something that uh, leaders will often choose is those who are loyal. So Governor Hanani. Second, faithful. Now, it speaks of Hananiah. Hananiah is his brother. Hananiah is another character altogether. But it says, for he was a faithful man. Now, this faithful Hananiah was in charge of the citadel. Let me explain. On the Temple Mount, and if I had a picture on the screens, I'd show you, but on the Temple Mount, it's a relatively safe environment because there's hills and valleys all around it, except for one place. In the northern area of the Temple Mount, it's less fortified because it's easier to breach the city and get into the temple. So the uh, fortress was always on the north side. In Jesus' day, the Antonia Fortress stood on that side where Pilate and his men kept the Roman guards. Well, here's the guy, Hananiah, who's in charge of homeland security for Jerusalem, for the temple. So he stations uh, his troops at this citadel or this fortress. It says he was a faithful man. The Hebrew word emet is faithful. It means stable or trustworthy, or someone who is steadfast in allegiance or affection. Loyal, faithful leaders. Now, pastors love to harp on the loyalty and the faithfulness issue to their flock. And it is good. It is a mark of maturity that as we grow in the Lord, we are more faithful to the Lord, faithful in our commitments to one another, faithful to the church we attend and serve in. One pastor stood up before his congregation on a Sunday morning and and said, "Um, I'm only asking that we apply the same standards of faithfulness to our church activities that we do in other areas of our life. He said, that doesn't seem like it's too much to ask. Consider this, he said. If your car started one out of three times, would you consider it faithful? If you didn't show up to work two or three times a month, would your boss call you faithful? If your refrigerator quit every now and then, would you excuse it and say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If your water heater greeted you with cold water one or two mornings a week when you were in the shower, would it be faithful? If you miss a couple of mortgage payments in a year's time, would your mortgage holder say, oh, well, 10 out of 12 ain't bad? And if you attend worship meetings only as often as to show that you're interested but not often enough to get involved, are you faithful? Now, we know that God rewards faithfulness because it's one of the qualities high on his list. Remember the parables that Jesus gave. And he says of the one, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the little things. I will make you ruler over many cities. God loves faithfulness. It was Bob Jones, senior, who started the famous university. who said, the greatest ability is dependability. So here's Nehemiah, guy in charge. Make somebody else governor, somebody else in charge of homeland security, loyal, 
and faithful. Now, there's a third quality, reverential. Notice what it says. He feared God more than many. That's an interesting description. He feared God more than many. He rose to the top like the cream of the crop in terms of a relationship with God. This guy, Hananiah, feared the Lord more than many. Let me just briefly tell you what the fear of the Lord is. First, I'll tell you what it isn't. When you hear the term, the fear of the Lord, and you hear people say, he's a good God-fearing Christian. The fear of the Lord doesn't speak about, it doesn't mean a superstitious fear. Like, I'm really afraid of God. He's got a frown on, and he's looking down, and he's just waiting for me to mess up. That's not the fear of the Lord. That's just weirdness. Now, I grew up in a church where there was a guy who, well, he represented God to me. And I thought of God as being like Monsignor Van Garcia. Now, Monsignor Van Garcia, and you can guess, obviously, what church I was a part of growing up. Monsignor Van Garcia never smiled. He scowled. He yelled. He grunted. He frowned. But he never smiled. I never felt love from him. So I grew up thinking that God was like Monsignor Van Garcia. Isn't that a horrible way to grow up? You say, I don't know. I've never met Monsignor Van Garcia. Take it from me. This guy was bad news blues. And so many people think the fear of the Lord is this sort of uh, fear of God's displeasure with them. That's not the idea of it. Um, the idea of fear of the Lord in the Bible is um, you're captivated with the glory of God. It's irresistible to you. And that irresistibility of the glory and nature and character of God, you're aware of that. And so you have a a fear because of that love relationship of ever displeasing him. It really is a reverential awe that results in a humble submission to a loving God. I think that's the best definition. A reverential awe that calls for and develops a humble submission to a loving God. Uh, If you look in the Old Testament, and we're in it, but if you look at other times the fear of the Lord is spoken about, the Hebrew word is yirat Yahweh. Yirat Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh. It was a term originally applied to children who are called in Leviticus to revere or reverence their parents. That is, you love them, you respect them, and you don't want to displease them. That's the idea. So I have a fear of the Lord. I'm captivated by his glory. I don't want to displease him. When my son Nathan was uh, much younger, it was a report card time. And I remember him standing there in the kitchen. He handed me his report card. He kind of looked down and he said, go ahead, ground me. (laughs) It's not good, he said. It's not good. Now, he wasn't afraid that I was an ogre, that I was going to beat him. He wasn't afraid of the punishment. He was fearful that he had displeased me. He was living his life, at least part of the time in the classroom, in the light of what his dad thought about the grades that he would bring home. 
So he just knew it. He says, go ahead, ground me. I, I, I know it's bad. And at that time, I wanted to extend to him grace. That was really a good move on his part. Okay. He feared God more than many. Fear of the Lord is a mindset. It's a worldview by which we filter all of our motives, actions, thoughts, speech through that filter of, well, what does God think about my finances? What does God think about the way I handle this situation? What does God think about the way I'm dealing with my wife, my children, my husband, my business? It is that grid or that filter that helps us construct a healthy way to live. And if there's any fear at all, if there's any dread at all, it's because I don't want to displease the one that I love. That's a healthy fear of the Lord. Now, that's a characteristic of a Christian. It is not a characteristic of the world. Remember when Paul wants to describe the world He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't care about how they live. They're not even thinking about what God thinks about them. That's characteristic of the world. But it's characteristic of the child of God to have a fear of the Lord. And when you do, you live confidently. You live confidently. There's many Scriptures on this, uh, Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. Now, Abraham was a good example of this. When Abraham did what God told him to do, though he's probably trying to figure this out. Why does God want me to kill my son? But he took him up on Mount Moriah. He took the knife in his hand. He was ready to plunge it down. Remember what the angel did and said? The angel stopped his hand and said, Don't do it. Don't take his life. Because now I know that you fear God. You are so willing to do whatever God wants you to do, and you are so fearful of displeasing him that you would even do this. You fear the Lord. You don't care what people think. You care what God thinks. Okay, verse 3, I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. So, Nehemiah sets up the leadership, sets up guards, two different kinds of guards, one that will stand at different portions of the wall that is surrounding the city. And others in front of their own homes. Why? Because some of the people's homes were on the wall. And if you remember back a few chapters, a lot of the people were building where their homes were. So what he's saying is, you did all the work. You built up the walls. You built up the walls around your homes. Now protect, guard what you have built. There's a lesson there. If God's people... Don't protect what they've accomplished for the Lord. The enemy will come in and destroy it. Folks, that's why you'll have apologetics or people who are called apologists, those who defend the faith, who will come up and rise up in a movement or in the church and say, that's false doctrine. That's wrong. That's a wrong method. And sometimes we look at that and go, oh, come on. Can't you be a little more loving than that? Because they realize that what is 
godly, what is God's truth, God's doctrine, God's word, and what has been accomplished in and for in the name of the Lord by the power of God must be guarded because every church, every organization, every movement is one generation away from destruction. History has proven that. You can have great movements of God and the next generation, they all go off the liberal deep end. So it's been built. Now guard it. Now protect it. You know, in ancient China, they were concerned about security. So a massive building project went underway, the Great Wall of China. And I stood on the Great Wall of China years ago, and it just goes on, it seems, forever. They say it's one of the things you can see from outer space marking the earth. They built the Great Wall of China because they wanted something that would be too tall to crawl over, too thick to go through, and too long to go around. They thought this would do it. But within the first 100 years that the wall was built, China was attacked three times. How did they do it? They bribed the gatekeepers. Nobody crawled over. Nobody broke through. Nobody went around. What they figured is that the weakness would be in the character of the people guarding the gates. So they bribed them, and three times they got through. Armies marched into China. The Chinese put all of their stock in the foundations of the walls and not in the foundations of the people guarding the walls, the gatekeepers. They were bribed. Churches do this. I find that churches will rely upon their buildings, their campuses, their structures, their government, their organization. Instead of realizing we have to pump into these people the kind of character traits and the leadership, the kind of leadership traits that will sustain the movement. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said if he had one last prayer to pray for the church, this is what he would pray. Lord, send to thy church men filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Give to any denomination such men, and its progress must be mighty. Keep back such men Send them college gentlemen of great refinement and profound learning, but of little fire and little grace, dumb dogs which cannot bark, and straight away that denomination must decline. Well, tell us how you really feel, Charles Spurgeon. (laughs) Nehemiah knew that character counts. So we got the right kind of people, gave them the right kind of orders. That's leadership. Now the chapter moves into the second phase, citizenship. You got to have people in the city. And a city isn't just a bunch of walls, it's the people within the walls. So, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. Now, if you've you've ever been to Jerusalem lately, you wonder about that statement. Because the old city of Jerusalem is a very tiny portion and the new city has grown around it. And you look at the old city and you go, this is it? They call this the city of Jerusalem? It's a little town. But back then... With new people coming in, fresh from Persia, resettling the land, rebuilding the city, and there's nothing around it except rural villages, it was quite large. Then my God put it into my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. 
and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city. Those who came up with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Raamiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, and a whole bunch of these other guys. The number of the men of the people of Israel. Now, this looks like a long, boring list of names, but keep in mind that these genealogies were used to track bloodlines to prove lineage for the sake of land ownership. Tribes were given land. You had to prove what tribe and what family you were from, so in coming back to the land, you could occupy the land that was left for the captivity. And what Nehemiah is doing is this. He wants to assess the population and find out what the population strains, what villages, what towns, what areas of Judah they're going to be going to to settle in so that he can conscript some of them who would normally go to other towns, other villages, to come and live in Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to kind of spill the beans for you. In chapter 11, it's the formula is given. Let me read it to you. Not all of chapter 11, but two verses, one and two. Now the leaders of the people dwelt in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. He's looking for volunteers. Don't let them all go back to their villages. We need people to occupy the city. Now, we're not going to read all the names. If you uh, are looking for a name for your child, you've got a whole slew here. Have fun. But look at verse 14. Let's get a few of them. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Benui, 648. The sons of Babai, Babai, 628. And the sons of Asgad, 2,322. Now, who in the world is Asgad? I don't know. He's just some dude whose family was taken into captivity for 70 years, but evidently in that 70 years, he's grown quite a bit. He's got a large clan. And they come back and they settle. And though you and I don't care who Asgad is, God, the Holy Spirit, obviously does. He's in the Bible. And what this means in terms of genealogy and land ownership is they have a place among the people of God. They can prove their genealogy. And so when somebody would challenge them and say, what right do you have to be here? They can say, I'm a great, 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 great grandson of Asgad. They can prove their genealogy. They know who they are. They know their lineage. They know where they belong. Some people today, spiritually, they don't know. If you ask them, are you a child of God? You might get this answer. I think so. Or, well, I hope I am. I really believe and hope that that's the case. It's not good enough. There is an assurance, right? The Bible talks about in 1 John that you might know that you know that you belong to him. There ought to be an assurance. This uh, last weekend in Albuquerque, we gave um, altar calls at all the services and probably about 120 altogether came to faith in Christ. It was a wonderful harvest. What was interesting is on our fourth final service Sunday morning, this man came up to me 
probably around 60 years of age, shook my hand. He had come forward in the altar call. And he said, I'm a Baptist minister. I've been backslidden for a long time. He walked forward realizing that, you know, he's really not sure at that point of his own genealogy. And he wanted to make sure. Gave his heart in a fresh way to Jesus Christ. The most important genealogy is your eternal one, isn't it? You make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Forever and ever. Revelation 20, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's one book you want to make sure your name's in. That's the one. Verse 63, and of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Kaz, the sons of Berzali, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzali, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their lineage among those who were registered by genealogy. But it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said unto them that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360. Now, this is a register of the people who've come back from the captivity. The priests that are mentioned cannot prove their genealogy, that they go back to the family of Aaron of the right tribe. And because of that, they were not allowed at all to participate in the priesthood until the priest could consult with these two stones, a black and a white stone, which, as some of you know, were sort of like, forgive me for using the analogy, sanctified dice. God really worked through the high priest using these stones to discover the will of God and here, evidently, to discover who was a true priest and who was a false one. God was guiding that system. Besides, verse 67, there are male and female servants to whom... There were 7,337. They had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules, 245. Their camels, 453. Their donkeys, 6,720. Isn't it amazing that even these animals were numbered in the Bible? Lucky donkeys. Lucky camels, their names are there, or their number is there. The names of the people who own them are there. Now, we'll close off the chapter with that third part, that third important component. Leadership is one. Citizenship is another. Stewardship is the third. Watch this. And some of the heads of the father's house gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, that's 19 pounds of gold. 50 basins, 530 priestly garments, some of the heads of the father's house gave to the treasury of the work. 20,000 gold drachmas, 375 pounds of gold. 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas. Again, 375 pounds of gold, 2,000 silver minas, 67 priestly garments. And so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the Nethanim, that is the temple servants, and all of Israel dwelt in their cities when the seventh month came, that is Tishri. All of this came about in the seventh month. Why? Feast of Tabernacles. One of the big feasts, they were getting ready for that. So the gold and the vestments were all put into place.
the children of Israel were in their cities. So evidently, some of these men, these nobles, came back from Babylon quite wealthy. You may remember that God gave directions to Jeremiah to send a letter to the people who would be in Babylon saying, get used to it, settle down in it, buy homes, cultivate fields, raise a family. And some of them took to the enterprising quite seriously. So they come back with more money, gold and silver. And they gave financially according to each one's ability. It doesn't say they were told to do it. They weren't forced to do it. They weren't conscripted to do it. The temple didn't send a letter saying, you owe us 10%. They just did it out of their own heart. That's how God wants it to be done. That's real stewardship. Hey, I want to be part of this work. And so they gave. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes these words. They're familiar. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I've always taken a pretty low-key approach to finances. Uh, The Bible speaks about giving, tithing, uh, stewardship. It's all over the Bible. So the Bible speaks a lot about it. It doesn't speak as much as some preachers speak about it, but it's there. But I've taken a rather low-key approach. Uh, We never even received offerings in the previous church. We just had boxes around. We called agape boxes. And we gave announcements every Sunday. And we said, there's boxes around. As the Lord leads, go for it. And I remember when we started that, uh, we only had a coffee can. And when we started our first Sunday morning and the elders said, well, what are we going to do for the offering? There's only a coffee can. Uh, There's going to be more people that can then can line up for one coffee can. I said, get three coffee cans. Spread them out a little bit. And we did, and we kept that whole approach for years. And we just called them agape boxes, and people were able to give. Uh, The Lord loves a cheerful giver, not out of necessity, uh, as you purpose in your heart, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. A lot of non-Christians, and even some of us Christians, we have a bad taste in our mouth because... We have seen it done the other way, haven't we? The church falls short. So at the end of the year, you know, you, it's stewardship month. You got to give. You got to support. Or on television, you know, dig deep. Or what's worse is this, this kind of word of knowledge thing. The Lord's speaking to me. There are 50 people with $1,000 here tonight. And they're going to give it. And by the way, we do take Visa and Master Charge. Hallelujah. And all of this weird kind of way to extract money from people. When we were in Belize twice and we did crusades and pastors conferences, the pastors remarked, they said, we've never been to a conference like this. You didn't charge us anything for it. In fact, you gave us material that we could keep and take home. He goes, ministries don't come in and give us things. They always try to get from us. Now, having said that, the Bible does talk about, and you can tell, in a sense, the level of people's spirituality by their willingness 
to part with financial resources. See, a lot of people go, great, hallelujah, I like this church. He didn't talk much about money. I'm coming here. Well, wherever your treasure is, there is your heart also. And I found that the most sensitive part of a person's anatomy is their pocketbook. You say, well, that's not really a part of an anatomy. For some people, it is. It's very sensitive. And the only thing that doesn't get converted, it seems, is their pocketbook. And just uh, take a tour of a person's checkbook, and you'll discover where their heart is very quickly. You look at somebody's spending patterns, you can discover where the heart is. And so it is an indication. Jesus said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. So these guys decided, hey, we're going to give to this work. We believe in it. And they gave in stewardship to support the work. There was a church down south. And the preacher was bringing his sermon to a close. And it was a very, uh, uh, well, a vociferous church, a very loud and responsive group. And he was bringing his sermon to a close. And he said, and this church like the lame man has got to get up and walk. And some of them said, that's right, preacher, let it walk, let it walk. And so it kind of wound him up a little bit, and he said, and this church, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, has got to run. And they said, let it run, preacher, let it run. Wound him up a little bit more. And he said, and this church has to mount up with wings of eagles and fly. And they said, let it fly, preacher, let it fly. And he said, for this church to fly, it's going to take money. And some of them said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. (laughs) Not this group. This group knew that for Jerusalem to be secure, it needed volunteers to build the wall, leadership that was loyal and faithful and reverential, and it needed the help of others who weren't in that ilk to give what God had blessed them with. And so they built the city together. It was done, but now the building in the lives of the people begins. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, you have blessed us so much, first of all, with the promise of your presence, that because of the work of Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us, We have peace with you. We have a relationship with you. We have all of the resources, all of the promises that never fail that are given to us. We have everything that we need, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the power of him who called us. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you beyond that for the fellowship, the commonness that we share because of Jesus Christ. That though we're different, we come together and we share. And if somebody has a need, we want to meet it. If someone needs prayer, we want to pray for them. If somebody has a financial need, we want to step in. That's part of just being a family, Lord, a body. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that our fellowship, even after the song closes, would continue as we bear our hearts and share our burdens one with another and so fulfill the law of Christ. This church isn't a city. It doesn't have literal walls that keep people out. We want to invite people in. But we are a community that is being built, one stone upon another, one person upon another. And so, Lord, add those who should be saved. 
Lord, I pray that our names would be found written in the Lamb's book of life. And if they're not, we would make sure that by being born again, they would be forever there. Lord, as we look to the future, we look with excitement because we know your plan for our lives is perfect. And so we surrender and submit them to you. And pray, Lord, that you would just fill our lives with those who are loyal and faithful and reverential in the spiritual realm. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for Mike from Jerusalem and Paul from Kansas City and the extra different players in the worship band and those who have come to visit. It's been a unique time because all of the unique people you brought together. But in unity, as one person, as one chorus, we just want to say we love you. And we're yours to do with what you want. Take just a moment in quietness and just your own prayer of commitment or recommitment or dedication or renewal or repentance. Repentance.